Well, again, I welcome you this morning, and um, if you are coming to us uh, as a visitor from another church that's more liturgically minded, I am aware that we're not supposed to have red up today, that this is the Feast of the Trinity, and these are the Pentecost colors, but I beg your permission, I'm keeping the red up for three weeks because we're going to focus on the Holy Spirit last week, this week, and next week, but I am aware that this is the Trinity Sunday, Um, so we're just going to look at the third person of the Trinity today. I really like the um, song that we did as a gathering song called Consuming Fire uh, this morning. If you were here Wednesday night for the ordination of uh, Luke, we now have a deacon in our church, um, there is a moment in the service right before the bishop lays hands on his head and confers holy orders to him when he kneels in front of the altar and in front of the bishop and we sing a song invoking the Holy Spirit to come into that moment. And there are a number of different songs that are appropriate, but they're basically all prayers to the Holy Spirit to come. And we sang Consuming Fire. And that song always strikes me um, as very powerful because the very opening words are, there must be more than this. That's the very first verse. There must be more than this. And then it says, O breath of God, come breathe within. And it is an acknowledgement that God wants to do more in our lives than most of us are aware, that he has more for us. Jesus invites us into a new life. By his spirit, regenerates us, gives us a new life, and then he makes some incredible promises. And many of these promises are slow in coming in our lives. Most of us, when we first meet the Lord, we experience some kind of breakthrough, maybe an old habit we're able to kick, maybe a new desire for worship or for prayer or reading the scriptures comes. A number of things like that happen. But then there are these other things that just don't seem to get fixed, that kind of nag us, that are there. And most of us, correct me if I'm wrong in your case, but most of us start to settle. We start to figure this must be as good as it gets. This is it. I'm just going to have to hang on now and be dogged by these problems and these sins and not have as much of the Holy Spirit as I'd like until I die, and then I get God fully. That's how many of the Christians I know function. We, at first, were expecting more of those kind of breakthroughs, but then when they tapered off, we kind of gave up hoping, and we settled for a little more. Jesus said some interesting things in his ministry. One is he said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and I will give him living water, and out of his heart will flow living water. And he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. And he also said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. So not just a new life, but an abundant life. These are things that Jesus said to us in John 7 and John 10. And so the question I'm asking this morning of all of us, I'm borrowing right off of the cover of the Alpha Course, is there more to life than this? Is there more to life than what you currently are experiencing? Does God have more for you in this life than you've experienced? Do you believe that he does? This is the second sermon in a three-week series, and the first week we looked at the idea of the Holy Spirit giving new life, new birth, regenerating us, making us born again if we trust Christ. And then next week, I'm going to look at the work of the Holy Spirit to bring assurance that he ministers to us and says, you are a son or daughter of God. Your salvation is secure. Your sins are forgiven. God loves you. He, and we'll talk about that next week. This week, I'm in between the two, and I'm speaking to a topic of discipleship. And I want to tell you on the front end, I want to light a fire under you. So this is going to be a little bit of a, hey, come on now. Let's get, let's get after it. God has work for you to do. Now go do it. 
And my passage is Ephesians 5.18. So I want you to turn there in a Bible because we're going to look at a number of verses. So find Ephesians in the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's Ephesians. And chapter 5 is towards the end of Paul's letter. This is a circular letter that he wrote to not just the church in Ephesus, but all the churches around Asia Minor. And so it's more general in its, in its uh, scope. And Ephesians 5 is in the imperative section where he's saying, now therefore do this, therefore do this, therefore do this. And I want to point out that in chapter 4, verse 30, he says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Past tense. This has already happened. If you're a Christian, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's a done deal. The Holy Spirit has come to reside with you in your heart. He is with you. The living God dwells in you. You are a holy temple unto the Lord. That's done. Now you go over to chapter 5, and it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the Greek, it's in the continuous meaning. It's, it's in the present tense, which means not just, okay, be filled and now it's done, but continuously, increasingly be filled over and over again. So this is something that we're supposed to pursue. And the Apostle Paul gives a contrast. He says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, some people have taken that verse and said, oh, well, like, I'm going to get high on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be drunk with the Holy Spirit. And they think it's going to be kind of a silly staggering about wildness that's out of control. But that's not the case. And even on the day of Pentecost, when the apostles and the disciples came out full of the Holy Spirit, some people did say they were drunk. But that was just a minority, and they were mockers. Most of the people marveled that they were speaking the gospel in their own languages. They were hearing these Gentiles, or these uh, Galileans, speak in other languages that they'd never studied, and they marveled at God's favor, and 3,000 people were converted there. So it wasn't a big, like, apparent drunkenness. It was just something that was different, and mockers made fun of it. But most people recognized it was an act of God. So it's not about staggering and being out of control. I think the reason the apostle used this as, is to use it as a contrast. It's a contrast. So he says, don't be drunk with wine, which is debauchery. Or another word for that could be translated dissipation. So debauchery would be bad, evil things. And dissipation would be a, a, a weakening of life. Your life is sort of skittering away. You're losing it. You're, it's, it's leaking out. Your life is getting away from you. Instead, the Holy Spirit brings control and power and various fruit that are all about character development. So if you know from Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control is actually a fruit of the Spirit, not out-of-control wildness, self-control. So Paul is using a contrast here. And the question is, what will it look like when a person is full of the Holy Spirit? I said last week, it's not likely to be tongues of fire and suddenly knowing foreign, foreign languages you've never studied and the ability to do miracles and marvelous acts. I like how my, uh, my, one of my favorite pastors and scholars, John Stott, put it. He said, there can be no doubt that the chief evidence is moral and not miraculous. And it lies in the Spirit's fruit not so much in the Spirit's gifts. The Holy Spirit does give gifts for ministry. Don't misunderstand me. And a lot of people get caught up on the gifts of the Spirit and they want more of those power gifts and they want a, the miraculous and these displays of power. Those gifts are for building up the body for sure. 
but primarily the work of the Holy Spirit is about character. It's about fruit that looks like Christ. He's making you into Christ's very character. Love is the very first fruit that is named. In fact, all the gifts, if they're not done in love, they're useless, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. So these are about moral character more than miraculous power. That's what the Holy Spirit is after. That's what it looks like when a person is full of the Holy Spirit. Now let me ask you this question. If you don't feel full of the Holy Spirit, what do you think is causing that? I think many of us, most of us, I hope, would be reluctant to blame the Holy Spirit and say he's not doing his job, right? I'm not going to point my finger at God and say, Holy Spirit, you're not doing a good job being the Holy Spirit. So if he's not messing it up, then maybe I am. If I'm not experiencing the fullness of the Spirit, maybe I'm what's wrong in that equation. Maybe there's something I'm not doing. Another scholar um, who has written the biggest commentary you've ever seen on Ephesians, which is, by the way, only six chapters long. He has a a commentary that's bigger than my whole Bible. His name is uh, Harold Honer. He says, with the indwelling, with the indwelling, the Christian has all of the spirit, but the command to be filled enables the spirit to have all of the believer. You get that? When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you get all of the Holy Spirit. But when you receive the command to be filled with the Spirit, the Spirit gets all of you. That's what we're going for, the Holy Spirit getting all of you and all of the fruit and the blessings that come with being a person full of the Holy Spirit. I heard a sermon, and Heather and I oftentimes um, mock this sermon um, the way that the person said it. We say it back and forth to one another. Um, We were in England, and of course, this was a really charismatic preacher who was really gifted, and he had the cool British accent, and he was preaching on the Holy Spirit, and he was talking about the various capacities we have for being full of the Spirit. And, um, you know, if I take a full lung full of air, a big breath, and so does a small child next to me, I have more air than that child does because my capacity is bigger. My lungs are bigger than a developing person. And the point of the sermon was that we should increase our capacity. But I can't remember anything other than that. I don't remember how to increase the capacity. And what the, what the sermon refrain that kept coming home was, um, he, he said it this way in his British accent. He said, get a bigger bucket. And I thought, yes, I need a bigger bucket so I can fill it more but I don't remember how to get a bigger bucket. Where does one get this bucket? You can't just go buy it, and it's a spiritual thing. It's not, just, it's not a physical bucket. So what does that look like? How do you get a bigger bucket? If you want more of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you're being commanded to be filled, what does it look like? You see, there's work for you to do here. That's what this, pas- this passage is so interesting to me because of the way it's worded. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a weird way to put it, Right? Because I could say, fill yourself with the Holy Spirit, or I could say, the Holy Spirit, fill that person. But to tell you to be filled, is, it's, it's an imperative, a command to you, but it's in a passive voice. I'm commanding you to let something happen to you, which would imply that you could choose not to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and you wouldn't be filled. That's what makes this passage so interesting to me. Um, A a professor up in Vancouver put it this way. He said, this imperative is the key to all others, and it's the ultimate imperative in all of Paul's writing. So take Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, the, the Thessalonians, the pastoral epistles. Take all those things that Paul wrote. 
take all the commands that are in them, and this pastor, this scholar is saying, this imperative here is the most important one. And I think I agree, but, you know, that's subjective, so fair enough, but I think it's a powerful, powerful command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what our lives are supposed to be about. So how do we do it? How do we get the bigger bucket? Well, I want to back up to verses 15, 16, and 17. I think Paul gives us some instruction right here that that can help us. And when we think about being full of the Holy Spirit, do you think mystical? Do you think wild and charismatic? Because what I've already said is to be full of the Holy Spirit is a moral character change. So it doesn't necessarily have this external kind of spirituality to it. It's way more pragmatic than that. It's way more practical. It's in the very simple decisions of your life. Look at what verse 15 says. Verse 15 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So the first way that you can be full of the Holy Spirit is to take account of your life. Look carefully how you walk. That doesn't mean like how you step, not how your feet work. That's just an expression. It's your, your walk is your life. Look carefully how you live. Live wisely in this world, not unwisely. A traveler on a journey who is unattentive, inattentive to direction and progress will never arrive at their destination. If you don't pay attention to the direction you're going and the progress you're making, you are never going to get there. Do you ever set out on a road trip where you don't have directions or know the way? You would be just taking a random Sunday drive. You'll never get where you're going. Or if you say, I'm going to go, I'm going to Disney this weekend, but you make no progress, it doesn't matter. You're not going to get there. I mean, this is, these are the basics of navigation, right? You set your bearings and you figure out how fast you can go and you can figure out when you're going to get there. And the only thing that would hold you back, which would, would be something like big obstructions, you know, there's a mountain in the way, you've got to go around it, whatever those are. So you've got to figure out where you're going, how to get there and how to get around the obstacles, Pay close attention to your life. Consider your life. Look carefully how you walk. Eliminate obstacles. Decide now where you're going to end up. Decide now who you want to be and what God is calling you to do. So that's verse 15. Verse 16 says, make the best use of the time. There are so many things vying for our time. There are so many things you could do this very day. I commend you for choosing worship. I recognize, I feel like the airlines, we recognize you have a choice on Sunday morning what you can do. We thank you for choosing Grace Anglican Church. There are so many things that you could do with your time. Make the best use of the time. I remember something that Henry Nouwen shared in a book of his when he met Mother Teresa. I might have told you this before. But he met Mother Teresa when she was alive and said, what should I do? Henry Nouwen is a Roman Catholic priest, a celibate man. This was her very simple and straightforward advice to him. She said, spend one hour a day in adoration of our Lord and never do anything you know is wrong. Boom, there it is. That's not real mystical, esoteric. There's, it's just, if you know something's wrong, don't do it and have an hour of worship every day. Now, he's a, a single man and her advice might be different to you and she's not God, she's just one of his servants. So I'm not saying that's my advice to you or that's her advice to you. I'm just saying... When you think of making the best use of the time, do good things, don't do evil things. Make worship a part of your life. Those are good things to do. Invest in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is breaking into this world all over the place, and sometimes you don't even see it. It's like going right behind you, and you missed it. 
Invest in it, look for it. Watch for God to open opportunities. This is where getting some spiritual eyes can be really helpful. Ask God to open the eyes of your heart so you can see what is really happening around you. Where is God's kingdom coming? Develop a personal vision statement. Do you know what your calling is? And I don't mean your job. Do you know what your calling is? How has God prepared you and equipped you, gifted you, given you experiences through life to arrive at this moment right now so that you can do something for him? What is that? Those of us that are pastors often talk of our calling, but I don't think we're the only ones who have a call. I think everyone has a call. I think God calls everyone, and the call is unique. But have you ever sat down with your journal in prayer and tried to write out a personal vision statement? I exist in order to be and do. What are those things? How has God gifted you? Who are you? That's part of setting the direction for your life. Again, this is very practical stuff, but this is the stuff that fills a person with the Holy Spirit and his power. Develop a personal vision statement so that right now you can start crafting what your epitaph will be. What will be on your gravestone? What do you want it to say? We'll work backwards from that and start living into that. So look carefully how you walk, make the best use of the time. And then third, look at verse 17. It says, understand what the Lord's will is. You're commanded to understand what the Lord's will is. There is only one way to know what God's will is. It is not to go off in solitude on a mountain and ask God to show you his will. I know that can be helpful to do, but that is not where you find God's will. It is recorded right here. This is where you find what the will of God is. I don't want you to be a spiritual person. I want you to be a truth-filled person. Our culture right now is all about spiritual people. I mean, I, I would guess half of you in the last month have heard someone say, I'm a very spiritual person. We hear that all the time. What does that even mean? What spirit? What does that mean? Does that mean that you close your eyes a lot and you chant? Does that mean that, I mean, what? I, don't, don't be a spiritual person. Be a truth-filled person. A person whose life is grounded on this this, this book is the revealed will of God. He's given that to us. And the Apostle Paul is telling us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, understand what the Lord's will is. Elsewhere in Romans 12 too, he says, let your mind be renewed so that you can test and approve what God's will is. This is how you renew your mind is you read God's word and then you bring your life into conformity underneath it. You commit yourself to his truth. And where your life doesn't line up with that, you change your life to be like God's word says it should be. These are the things that help a person be filled with the Holy Spirit. So now I come back to, is there more to life than what you're experiencing? And are there things that you're not doing that if you did them could lead to the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Most people, they'll hear a message like this and they'll think, yeah, he is trying to light a fire under us. Okay, I'm going to get on after this. And we spend two weeks doing it. And when we don't see fruit immediately, what we do is we go back to what we've always known. The old habits are so, they're, they're like ruts worn in, in the past. And we can go back to those so much easier than we can to go into uncharted territory. This is new, but it's going to take a season. It's more than two weeks. It's going to take time. I want to encourage you to go onto our website and listen to the sermon that the bishop gave here for the ordination. Bishop TJ, it's right up on, it's the top of our sermons right now. He preached on John 15, abiding in Christ and how apart from Christ you can do nothing. And it was good. I mean, I'm sharing with you. I think it was just for me, to be honest. I'm going to take that sermon and 
bring it into my sabbatical and listen to it all summer and, and wrestle with what does it look like to become a person who is always abiding in Christ? Not just for two weeks. I'm going to do this all summer. I want to encourage you to do uh, similar things. Pursue these things. Look carefully how you walk. Make the best use of the time. Understand what God's will is. Become a truth-filled Christian. I want to um, conclude by sharing something from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've read to you part of his first chapter from a book called The Cost of Discipleship. I want to read to you the second part of that, where he talks about costly grace. Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran minister in Germany and opposed Hitler and was hanged for it and spent a long time in prison, but he was a, well, uh, a very brilliant man, and he was well-published and wrote a lot. And this is his book that is um, his exposition on the Sermon on the Mount. It's called The Cost of Discipleship, and v- the very first chapter is called Costly Grace, and he starts out by talking about cheap grace. And I, I've read that to you before, and I want to talk to you about costly grace, because what I'm doing here is I'm not throwing works righteousness on you. Please don't hear that. I'm not telling you how to be saved. I told you that last week. And I'm not telling you that if you don't do this stuff, your salvation is hanging in the breeze. I'm, I'm going to tell you next week that you're already assured if you're in Christ. You've got good bookends. But we in the evangelical world are afraid of saying, go after it. You're not doing a very good job. Work harder. We're afraid of saying that because we think, oh, works righteousness. I'm going to try to earn my salvation. I'm, it's going to be all about me. And yet we come across a passage like this that says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we sit there thinking, I don't have the fullness of the Spirit. Why? Well, I'm going to tell you why. This is costly grace. He says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It's costly because it costs a man his life, and it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin, and it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. I'm suggesting to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we've got work to do. I'm also suggesting that God tells us we're supposed to do that work. And I'm also saying that if we're not experiencing the Holy Spirit, it's because we're not doing the work. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will stir you to want more and to not settle. So let's now turn to him and ask the Lord to show us the obstacles or maybe the reasons why we're not moving in the right direction. Let's, let's pray and lift this up. Father, I thank you for the Holy Scriptures. I thank you for the gift of your Spirit. Lord, we hold our lives before you now and pray that you would show us how we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Come, give us more. Forgive us, Lord, for being satisfied with less. Would you raise our vision and set our sights on you and you alone? And I pray for these coming weeks that the efforts made by this church would indeed bear fruit, for that's what you promise. Give us abundant life, Lord, for only in you can we truly live. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.